0: let's pray together. Father, I'd ask that you open our hearts and minds to your grace and love as we open your word. I'm going to tell you a story this morning about a, 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 a story in scripture. It's a story that you you know, you've read, you've heard. It comes from the gospel of Mark, but it's the one of the miracles of Jesus that appears in all four of the gospels. And uh Uh, But we're going to kind of stick to the Mark passage, uh, Mark chapter 6. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, but I'm going to try to set it in context for you. Uh, Earlier in the chapter of chapter 6 of Mark, Jesus gathers his 12 and he sends them out to do ministry, two by two. Now, I believe that's the first time since they were called as disciples that they were not with Jesus. But they go out and they do their thing. They do what they have been doing with Jesus. Now they're going out and doing it uh, apart from Jesus. And uh, they, they come back and they're all excited. <clears throat> because they have seen demons be driven out. They have uh, seen healings and miracles, and I mean, they're pumped. They're, you know, wow, you know, what was happening with Jesus is now happening with us, and this is great, but when they get back, they hear the news. It's not good. John the Baptist has been executed. <clears throat> and that, you know, so here you've got this excitement, but you also have this great disappointment and confusion what were you doing while we were out, Jesus? We were out doing this. We're, don't you care about John? You could have done, you know, they didn't say any of that, but you can kind of, and Jesus understands what they're kind of doing. And and Jesus says, you know, you guys, y'all need some time away. Why don't, why don't we all get in the boat and let's cross over Galilee and, uh, and, and, and just spend maybe a day or two just just us, just us guys, and kind of debrief and relax and, and, uh, and think about all that's happened. And, but as they get on the boat, a crowd sees them. People see them, and they, we know where they're going. And so they start gathering up, and they start running around the north end of Sea of Galilee, In every village they run through, they say, we know where Jesus is going. And more people add and more people go. And then by the time they get around to where Jesus and the 12 actually were designed to be by themselves, there's, it says, 5,000 men at 5,000 families. And instead of this quiet time alone, Jesus starts teaching to the crowd. Okay. But you can kind of... You know, you read through this and kind of feel their disappointment. They need him, they want him. They got things to say, they things to ask, and confusion about John and that kind of stuff. And but Jesus is just teaching the crowd, and they kind of interrupt him. It's kind of getting late in the afternoon, and say, you know, Father Jesus, don't you think we probably ought to send these people away? Cause we don't have any food to feed them, and they've traveled all this way around, and and and. You know, and Jesus' response, and I'm making a little of this up, but I think he, what he was really saying to him was, well, you guys just got back from doing miracles. You guys just saw healings. You guys just did all these wonderful things. When you were out two by two, you, you feed them. And they did what most church members do. They, they said, well, what, what, that would be too expensive, and that would be too far and, and too hard and too, 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 and... Jesus, okay, what do you got? And Mark doesn't tell us about the boy with the sack lunch, but uh, John tells us that. But but they just said, well, we 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 found these five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus, said, well, okay, bring it here, and he starts breaking the bread, breaking the fish, and uh, divide the people up into fifties and go serve them. So they they go serve and they come back, and Jesus is still just breaking it up and fill their basket again. They go serve again and go and go back. How many times they have to go back to feed, you know, maybe 15,000 people. I don't know, but they're, they're just going back and forth and it never runs out until they finally, you know, they okay, everybody's had all they want. And Jesus, well, what about the leftovers? Okay, we'll go gather them up. and And there's 12 big baskets of leftovers. They come back. Now imagine if you were a part of this, you know, I mean, you do be, you'd be high-fiving, but, you know, you'd have to put your basket down in order to do a high-five. So, so you wouldn't be high-fiving, but, you know, you, you just you've got a big grin on your face because you got to participate in this amazing miracle with all these people watching. Wow! This is fantastic. This is good. But then Jesus does something that's a little bit out of character. He said, well, okay, send, them, send everybody away. Well, we just fed them. Okay. Well, send them home. <coughs> and why don't you, you guys, you twelve, get in the boat and go on back across Galilee. I'm going to go up the mountain and and pray. That's that's not out of character at all because he did that a lot. But to send them alone and to send the crowd anyway, it just it all happened. And uh, <coughs> so. Every time, Ever since they were together, they'd been together. But now you got this two-by-two two going out alone. And now he has sent them on the boat alone. Now, north of Galilee is a mountain named Mount Hermon. And it's a major mountain. I'll tell you that right now. I mean, they ski on Mount Hermon. There's snow on it about three fourths of the year, and uh, but you know you have to be careful about your skiing. Uh, you know, I mean, if you get off, you know, if you get off on the wrong trail, you can end up in Lebanon, and folks like Hezbollah, they don't really like you know. American skiers going off the wrong side. And if you go the other way, you'd be in Syria. And if you get off the trail proper, there are still landmines all over the mountain. And so it, it's a pretty challenging ski you know, <laughs> deal. But that mountain triggers storms. It's that big. And storms will come right down the Jordan Rift Valley. But now, of course, off to the west is the Mediterranean. And it, too, can trigger storms. And storms can come either from the west or the north. And either way, they can come upon those who are on Galilee quickly. I mean, and, you, and if you're down on Galilee, I mean, because it's really low, you know, way below sea level. But it, those storms can come and just tumble down in you. And I've seen that happen, uh, but I hadn't seen it th- to this extent. But it comes down upon them and they're out there rowing, you know the story, and they're trying to fight the wind and the wind's blowing, it's getting stronger and stronger, it's starting to get later and later and darker and darker. And we're told that Jesus is up here in the mountain praying, but he's also up there watching. He's watching them. He can see them from where he is, because so we're told, he well, I saw y'all. And so he, he, he starts down and he goes out there and walks on the water. Now, we Christians, we've read this story. We go, yeah, yeah, Jesus walks on water. If you had been there, if I had been there, I know what choppy water is. I know how it can, it can be difficult to steer a boat. And then I see somebody walking on the water, it would have freaked me out. I, I mean, I would have probably started rowing the opposite direction. You know, I mean, it, it just beyond i mean you know but but here in jesus don't be afraid (coughs) it's i it's me and then i want to read for you out of mark chapter six (coughs) but i was wondering do you think possibly that the disciples were just a little bit angry did he know a storm was coming he sent us out here in, in this storm that he knew was coming, and he's been watching. Anyway, look at chapter 6, starting with verse 49. But when they saw him walking, I think we have it somewhere. Yeah. And when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him, and they were terrified. That's a pretty important word, terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. So you got this terrified, and now you have this amazement. Right there, in the same boat. Now this next verse, this next part of the verse... He said, for they did not understand, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You ever seen that before? I've read Mark many times. I I took Mark in seminary. I don't remember seeing that. Yeah. We can talk about Pharaoh. I know Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a hard, hard heart. He decided to have a hard heart. God told him he was going to have a hard heart. God hardened his heart and he hardened his heart. I know Pharaoh's got a hard heart. That's good. Great. He deserves a hard heart, but these are the disciples. Now think about it. They had just been gathering up leftovers of an amazing miracle just hours before. And now they get on the boat, they get scared, and Jesus says, You know why? You, you, you're all spooked. You know why? Because you don't understand, you didn't understand the meaning of the loaves. And your hearts are hardened that quick. Hmm. Been nine years. Life was good. My life was good. My family was good. Our daughter-in-law was pregnant with our third grandchild. And then it kind of tumbled in. She caught pneumonia. The doctor said, "You know, don't worry. We, you know, we're, we're going to knock this pneumonia out." But the baby's fine. But the doctor was wrong. And uh, about 24 hours, they lost a heartbeat. She wanted us to go in. We came in. And she said, David, pray that this heartbeat will restart. I believe those things happen. I wasn't going to say no. And I prayed. I prayed with all I had. But the heart didn't restart. But maybe, maybe after I leave, it will. <coughs> another, another day goes by, and the doctor said we're going to have to induce. Maybe before they do, please pray again. I did but as i prayed that time something happened inside <coughs> it's hard to it's hard to describe but i knew i knew something was happening inside my own heart our daughter was our grand our daughter-in-law was almost 6 months along the doctors induced perfect, healthy little baby girl named Sarah Elizabeth. Just no, no heartbeat. And our daughter-in-law was not healthy enough to be released from the hospital. And our son decided not to go and stay with her. And so my wife and I, and two friends, we we buried Sarah Elizabeth, and uh, had a just a private graveside service, um, as we laid the little box in the dirt, <coughs> I got up and I was angry. I was angry a few days later, the doctor said she was well enough to get out, and so we planned a big memorial service and I mean, the church was packed. there were people everywhere hanging off the rafters. It was a beautiful service i mean worship and prayer and just joy and scripture reading and hope and love and grace and just beautiful it's amazing she went back for a checkup a couple of days after that and the doctor put her into the ICU almost immediately said her lungs were filling up and by the next day the doctor was telling us that they were going to have to do a biopsy of the lung and they did, and she didn't really wake up. She couldn't breathe on her own. The lungs were feeling up completely. And uh, they had all these pipes and, you know, all the stuff. So she was, they were breathing for her. She could not breathe. There were times when she was almost awake, and she would send us little hand signals uh, and then she finally, she would write a note, and we were excited about that prospect. But when the doctor tells you out here, she cannot survive, and then she tells you a note, writes a note, and said, "I danced with Sarah today." Those were hard. Those were hard notes. Second week went along, and the doctor said, "You know, there's the you know they're clearing a little bit." Um, but they're, they're, they are so damaged, she will be in a nursing home for the rest of her life if she, if she survives. Uh, and I have to tell you, I looked at my son, and th- that was a harder word than the first one. Fourteen days, the doctor said, I'm not sure, but the lungs seemed to be clearing. Twenty-one days, the doctor said, we're going to pull it all out. She's breathing on her own. The lungs are nearly completely clean. They pulled it all out. Her eyes opened big and she said, y'all didn't see what I saw. (laughs) What did you see? Because what we were seeing were doctors telling us that you weren't going to, that's not what I said, but, you know, doctors were telling us you weren't going to make it. She said, you didn't see the angel that came, did you? "Mm, No. You didn't see the two angels that came? No. You, You didn't. Oh, my, you saw something, didn't you? (laughs) You saw something really big. I said, yeah, she did. She said that these two white angels that looked like Penn and Teller, they came in and they said, we're here for your healing. And they'd go to the side of the hospital room, and they'd, it's like a submarine door. They'd turn this little deal, and then they'd open this swinging door, and then they'd run her bed in the ICU out that door and onto a roller coaster. And it would take off real fast and go up and down, sideways, down, way down below the earth and way up in the sky, and it's going on. And sometimes, they do this every day, and sometimes people got to ride with her. Really. And so I'm asking all these questions, trying to get this all out of her. And she starts naming people that got to ride on the roller coaster. She had no way of knowing who came to the prayer room that was down on the floor immediately under ICU. There was a steady stream of people that were coming to pray all 21 days. And she started naming people that got to ride on the roller coaster. And it was the same list that had been in the prayer room that she would never have known. she stopped. She was telling all of this and her mother had walked in. She said, Mom, in my vision, you asked to ride the roller coaster and the angel said you weren't spiritually ready and they wouldn't let you. And she looked at her mom and said, you know what I'm talking about. And she looked at all of us and said, everybody out of the room besides mom. Closed the door. About 30 minutes later, her mom came out as a brand new person. Part of my healing for this was that I did write a children's book. And there are copies somewhere. Beth had one. That was a a weird deal because I tried to keep it as close to what my daughter-in-law was telling me. We painted, I had the artist, and she painted this beautiful picture of Sarah Elizabeth, who appeared as a five-year-old, teaching my daughter-in-law spiritual warfare and how to dance and she was wearing a blue dress. So the artist drew this. And the picture is breathtaking. It's in the book. And when my daughter-in-law saw the picture, she said, no. I said, OK, we want to get this right. What's wrong? That's not the blue she was dressed in. OK, what, what is that blue? I don't know, but that's not it. And actually, the dress had about a dozen different blues in it. So I don't know how she knew. But... So anyway, I went to Lowe's. And I got every blue paint chip of every brand. And I brought them back. And I spread them on the table in front of her. And I mean, it, it completely filled the table. From you know, really dark blue to, to little, you know really sky blue to everything in the middle. And I said, no, just pick out which one. And the artist is going to change that dress to that color. She looked, she's not here. I said, what do you mean? Every blue on the face of the earth is on this table. And she said, I said, okay, what's the difference between the blue of, the, of Sarah's dress and these blues? And she said, all I can say is that that blue was living. And these are all dead blues. Think about that, that there might be in heaven living colors. We had, after she, she was still in a wheelchair, wheelchair for three or four weeks, but we decided it was best to have a a service where she could tell her story at the river. And so I did an interview with her, and it was a beautiful time. It really was. But you know, when I prayed for her the second time for Sarah's heart to start, I told you something happened in my heart. My heart got hard. I ignored it. I pretended that that didn't happen. But when I was interviewing her, we were winding it down, and something just slipped out of my mouth. I wished I hadn't said it, but it was what was in my heart. It's just something I shouldn't have said, not from the pulpit. I said, I am thrilled. I am thrilled that the angels came and my daughter-in-law is alive. But why didn't they come three weeks earlier? Why not? One of the reasons why I like the Mark story about this is that in two chapters later, in chapter 8, Jesus gives them a second chance. He feeds the 4,000. There's no hard hearts then. It took me several months to swallow my grief because that's what I did. I swallowed it. I ignored it. I pretended, I went back to work, I'm preaching, I'm doing all the stuff pastors do. You know, I'm counseling people, I'm doing funerals and doing weddings and preaching every week and all that, all that stuff. And one day I'm reading, I'm, I, the t- truth is I had almost quit reading the Bible for my own heart. But I had to read it for sermon preparation. And I was reading Matthew 11 and it was about John the Baptist in prison. And John the Baptist is, <clears throat> things aren't working out quite the way he thought they ought to work out. He's in prison, so he sends out this message and says, Jesus, I got to know, are you really the one? Are you really, really? And Jesus sent back a message and said, the blind are seeing, the cripple are walking, there's healings. And then Jesus adds a beatitude, not in the beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, but another beatitude. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. In the NIV, it says, Blessed is the man. This is what Jesus sent back to John the Baptist, who's in prison. And we know he was executed in the sixth chapter of Mark. Mark. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me or in the New King James Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I read that I just I just grew cold. I had been offended by Jesus. And my heart had grown hard. And I just kept reading that passage over and over and over. And sometime about the 40th or 50th time of reading it, I could feel something was changing. Something was flowing through me. I could feel my heart just starting to soften. My questions still didn't have answers, but suddenly it didn't matter anymore. I just kept repeating it. Blessed is he who is not offended because of what I didn't do or what I have done. Blessed is he who is not offended because I didn't do what you expected. Blessed is he who is not offended because I didn't follow your schedule. I don't know about where you are, what's happened in your life, what may be happening right now in your family, but what's happened in the last week or month or year or 20 years. I don't know. But I know how easy it was for me to find that I had a hard heart and not know it. I also know how easy it was for Jesus to heal my hard heart, give me a second chance, and melt my heart. As I just kept reading the same passage over and over, blessed is he, who is not offended because of me. I want to shift gears. I didn't do this in the second service, in the first service. I am detecting over much of the church today what I'm calling distant-ism. People believe. In most churches, they're full of believers. They have had a salvation experience. And maybe they've even had a, a Holy Spirit experience. But on a practical, everyday life, God is distant. But you think about a story that you know, it's a hard story. Stephen, before the, the Jewish leadership, and the, when they decide to stone him. And as the rocks are coming, Stephen looks and he sees. He sees the throne room He sees the Father. He sees the Son because the the Son is now standing. Hebrews tells us that when Jesus went up, he sat down. But now Stephen saw him standing. I know why he was standing. He was standing to reach down and grab Stephen. Come on up. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Okay, simple question. How far had the throne room had to travel? In order for Stephen to see them. Had they been traveling for a couple of weeks, a couple of months? How far? It's a stupid question, isn't it? The throne room had been right there all the time. Close enough that if Jesus lynches over, he could take Stephen by his hand. You have to use your sanctified imaginations. Every day, where are you? I mean, the church answer is, you're everywhere. That's really saying you're nowhere. Everywhere is really nowhere. So when you ask, where are you? If I took my keys out and I toss them, and just as I toss them, the throne room curtain opens, those keys would hit that glassy floor and run right up to the foot of Jesus. And that is true all the time. I had a guy tell me, he said, his wife caught him looking at some stuff on his computer that he shouldn't have been looking at. His wife called me, I go go over, and we're sitting. We're sitting actually in his den, and his computer is sitting there. This man is a Christian believer. I said, okay, show show me the button. He said, what button? Well, your computer must have a button that shuts out the kingdom of God. Because you wouldn't be watching this stuff if you knew how close the Father and the Son and the Spirit were right behind you looking over your shoulder. So you must have a button that shuts them out. He said, there's no button. I said, well, then you, but you believe. He said, yeah, I believe. I'm going to tell you right now, if you will learn to start living. Living. As if you are in, you know, we, we talk about the kingdom of God all the time, but we, we miss what he's saying. The kingdom of God is living under the presence of the throne room, and it's right here all the time. We go about thinking that we're so far away, and we wish God would come near, and, and maybe he'd, he'll draw near for this. He's right here. If we will just start to live and act as if everything we do is under the very throne room. Every, com- every conversation we have, every time we snap at our wives, we've done it right there in front of Jesus and everybody. If every time we, we, we say something to our kids, it's heard right there. They're within earshot. They're right here. Every time we come to worship, if we learn to live this way, it, it changes how we worship. Because this praise team gets up here and they play their guitars and their keyboard and they sing. And we, well, silver's sure God would show up today. Oh, if we will just learn to live under the knowledge. They didn't have to travel. The throne room didn't have to travel to see Stephen. He's right there. He's right there. He's right there for you. When our hearts are hardened, we don't want to look. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Sometimes when a guest preacher comes, people want the guest preacher to pray for him. But I'm going to tell you right now the people that need to pray for you right now, you're sitting near. If there's something inside of you and you know there's a disappointment with Jesus, a hurt, a hardness that has crept in, would you confess that to someone? And would you just let that person pray for you? That's how we're going to end the service. If you would like to go pray for someone, go do it. Just stand up. Stand up. If you see somebody stand, you go find them. Right quick, you pray over them. And this is the prayer. It's not hard. Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me.